This is Mike Levitt. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible healthcare for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of healthcare. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to The Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Cleaver and Daniel Chipping of the Institute for Advancing Health Value. The Institute is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating the industry to succeed in health value. Join Eric and Daniel as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. to value listeners this week we are joined by dr bill wolf the first physician ceo of central ohio primary care dr wolf is a respected leader in the value movement he leads the largest physician-owned primary care group in the united states during his leadership tenure central ohio primary care has grown to over 480 physicians in 83 locations in central ohio Dr. Wolf is a member of the COPC Board of Directors. He serves on the Board of Agilon Health. He's also on the Board of Directors and is board chair for America's Physician Groups, APG. I couldn't think of anyone else better to offer our platform to tell his story. It's indeed a great story. This is someone that grew up in Alliance, Ohio, went to undergrad in, in Ohio State, went to med school, fell in love with medicine. He's passionate about value-based care. He's led his practice on a journey that is really an exemplar for all of us, you know, trying to, to do the hard work and creating value transformation. So with all that said, let me go ahead and hand it over to Dr. Bill Wolf as he joins us this week in the Race to Value. And if you like this podcast, please make sure to go to Apple podcast, give us a review, uh, five-star ratings, appreciate it, sign up for our newsletter. Your support helps us continue to create and sustain our model as we look to offer a platform for learning and helping organizations like yours win this race to value. Well, Dr. Wolf, I want to welcome you to the race to value. It's just amazing to have this opportunity to spend time with you today and learn about the great work that you're doing in value transformation. Eric, thank you. Uh, thanks so much. Really glad to, to be here and, and represent primary care. Well, Bill, I'd like to begin our conversation today by discussing the origin story of Central Ohio Primary Care, the nation's largest independent primary care practice. You've been serving as the CEO of the group for the last 10 years. You're going to be retiring on January 1st. Your tenure as CEO has been marked by great progress for the practice, making it one of the leading organizations for value-based care in the country. And I just can't congratulate you enough for your leadership and tireless commitment to improving health outcomes with your population in Central Ohio. Your work with COPC actually began in the late 1990s as a founding member 
with progressive leadership as corporate medical director in 2007 before your role as CEO. Since you co-founded the practice in 1996 as a group of 33 physicians that came from 11 merging practices, it's since grown to over 480 physicians, 83 locations, serving more than 450,000 patients. And as CEO, you've built a high-value patient care model through population health and care coordination strategies enabled by, by Medicare Advantage, and have since moved the practice into other shared savings and risk-based contracts. And we're going to discuss the practice's value journey here in a bit, but let's first talk about how the practice came to be. Can you summarize the formation of COPC, its growth over the years, and how it eventually became a leading primary care practice in the country? And also, what are you most proud of when it comes to your legacy of leadership at COPC? Yeah, Eric, thanks. When we got together originally, and, and there were 33 of us, and, and as we were forming, there were more physicians sort of in and out of the process because this was a, a new idea to take you know, an independent practice of two, three, five, six doctors and merge them into one tax ID number. But um, we, we did that for, for lots of reasons. Number one, initially, we were going to have to develop a, some type of way to cross cover each patient's in our largest hospital. And the reason was because of the, the change in residency hours restrictions, uh, we were all teaching physicians in, in either family practice or internal medicine training programs. And uh, because of those hours restrictions, you know, we were going to have to find a way to work without house staff 12 months a year. And so we really got together to figure out how we could develop a hospitalist program to support each other. And, and during those initial meetings, we realized that really we were all kind of tired of running a small business and making all those decisions you make every single year as a small business. We also thought we should be able to get better payer contracts. You know, in the, in the mid-90s when we formed in, in 96, we were just mailed our contracts every three years from the payers. So, you know, you, you got a, a letter that said, these are the codes, these are the this is what we'll pay you. And you signed it. You never met with a payer. Well, as 33, we actually could sit down with payers and begin to negotiate. We also thought we could get to a, a common record. Uh, we also wanted to own ancillaries. Quite simply, those profits, uh, those ancillaries were for profit. Uh, if, if we owned a laboratory, we didn't have to send everything to a national lab. If we owned radiology, uh, we could earn a little bit of income by having our own CAT scanners and MRI and plain film. And, and so those are the reasons we, we got together. And over time, those better contracted rates, ancillary income benefits drove physicians to us. And we, we really never pursued physician groups, but they came to us and, and knew that we were performing high quality care at better rates and, and had ancillary income. And so we, we grew, quite frankly, uh, initially because of that. And, and that was a time when uh, systems were beginning to buy practices. And the physicians that joined us wanted to remain independent and, and physician-led. And our first years of growth were really based on, on that. Then when we did get into the value game in 2010-11, that also drew physicians because we could improve physician 
income and practice satisfaction by helping physicians uh, provide higher quality care and be recognized for that. And, and so our, our growth the last 10 years has been based on us being in the value game and, and helping physicians take better care of their patients. And, and so quite simply, that's that's how we've grown uh, as quickly as we have. And we still add, you know, this year we'll bring in 30 new physicians, but we'll also bring in three practices. And there aren't as many independent physicians available as, as there used to be because, you know, over, uh, over half the physicians in the country are employed by hospital systems at, at this point. But in this market in central Ohio, we've been able to stay uh, relevant and grow and continue to uh, be a place for physicians to remain independent. Well, it's an incredible story of growth. It's a, a story of value transformation, and it was all done with independent primary care providers. And I find that so inspiring. And you have the largest independent primary care medical group in the country. And along with that, that I, I really just found I was enamored with as I uh, learned more about your group is that you have this commitment to providing the highest quality care, and it's guided by these higher level ethical principles. And these ethical principles are exemplified through that recognition of physician independence, where the physicians have the freedom to care for their patients without interference. And COPC, as I understand, believes that the exercise of the physician's clinical judgment and discretion in making clinical and eth ethical decisions in the care and treatment of patients, it has to be preserved and protected through independence. And another bedrock in the culture of your practice, the commitment to value-based care. And you, you mentioned earlier in 2010, you made the decision to begin the value journey. And as I understand, that started with the transformation into a patient-centered medical home. And the model that's certified by NCQA really does emphasize communication, care coordination, team-based care. And as a practice fo focused on patient-centered care, COPC has a, as you mentioned earlier, a comprehensive electronic health record. It utilizes value-based contracts and infrastructure design, stratifies risk to prioritize patient care resources for those most in need, leverages physicians in a hospital setting to reduce lengths of stay, you manage transitions of care, identify gaps to reduce hospitalizations. And as I understand, you even make house calls to patients to improve patient experience. And that decision to become a patient-centered medical home, I know that was a strategy to get your physicians on the same page for value-based metrics, which could in turn serve as a stepping stone for capitation. Can you describe the COPC value journey over this last decade? And what role did patient-centered medical home designation play to improve the patient-centered care coordination strategies and clinical outcomes? Also, how important was retaining physician independence in accomplishing population health in your care delivery model? Yeah, so let me touch on the independence piece first. For us and for me as a primary care physician, and I'm an internist by training, though I'm not seeing patients now, the value of being independent means that when I'm sitting in front of my patient, Betty Smith, I can refer Betty anywhere in this city. In Columbus, we're blessed with, with three great adult systems. I can refer Betty to any of those three systems. 
or really anywhere in Ohio, or for that matter, anywhere in the country. If I have data that tells me where Betty is best served, I can refer her there instead of referring Betty upstairs to the specialist in my system that, quite frankly, if I know isn't the best, I, I'm between a rock and a hard spot as, a, as a, a provider. But being independent allows me, by utilizing data, to get what's best for the patient sitting in front of me. And that's, that's uh, where we think that independence is so important. As far as our, our movement into value, in 2007, I became our medical director. And in 2009-10-ish, I began to have data because we're on one electronic record and because we have data on our physicians, I began to be able to figure out, uh, quite frankly, who our best doctors were. And, and when I started into practice in 1988, I wanted to be uh, one of the best doctors in town. And the way I defined a best doctor in 1988 was, number one, you had to be knowledgeable. You had to keep up on the information that was changing so quickly, but you had to be knowledgeable. You, you had to be compassionate. You had to be able to communicate to patients. But that last piece that really I thought would define me as a, as a really good doctor was I had to be busy. And if I was busy, that meant that patients stayed with me. They referred friends, they referred family. And when I joined two primary care physicians as the third partner in 88, my partners were really busy and I wanted to be like that. Well, so fast forward, I'm looking at our data uh, on our individual physicians, and, and it struck me that really the, the best physicians were not the busiest physicians. They were the physicians that had the most diabetics in control, the, the most hypertensives in control, the best cancer screening statistics. So their patients had colonoscopies, their women had mammograms. And, and so those physicians, I could now define as, as our best physicians quality-wise. But when I looked across at their income, I realized that some of these physicians in a fee-for-service world were making the lowest income in our organization. Now, they were professionally satisfied because they were delivering fantastic care, but they were creating value, not just for the patient, which of course is first and foremost, but they were creating value for the payer, uh, if that patient was fully insured, for the employer, if that patient was worked for a self-insured employer, or for the government in Medicare and Medicaid. So they were creating tremendous value that they were not recognized for in a fee-for-service world. So locally, an, an initiative started to bubble up of, of developing some patient-centered medical homes in, in this community. And, and uh, we raised our hand and said, we want to do it. We'll be one of the first. And so we took initially one practice and qualified them as a patient-centered medical home. And really what it took was for us to be in a room with the payers and for us to, for COPC to ask the payer, if we become a PCMH, will you pay us? And the payer to say, we will pay you if you become a patient-centered medical home. The payers saw some value in this. We saw value because we could receive a prepayment, a, a per member per month upfront payment from the payers. We could take that payment, create programs that would create value, and then the payers would recognize that in shared savings. So we started with one patient-centered medical home 
turned it into three. And eventually, if after uh, several years, we had 44 level three NCQA uh, certified patient-centered medical homes. And, and we did that, as you said, we did that as a, a stepping stone, a building permit. Our, our, our intention was not to continue to recertify as patient-centered medical homes, but to use that as a means to get our physicians on the same page around quality goals and quality metrics. And for our doctors to understand that to, because we were a patient-centered medical home, we had to track your statistics. We had to report them to you. And we chose data that was irrefutable by our physicians, because as, as you probably know, if you tell a physician that their, their data, they usually don't believe it. And every physician thinks that they're above average, which of course is not possible. So we stressed this with our doctors. They understood the need for data. They understood the need for it to be reported to them. And, and most importantly, the payers bought into it. They agreed to do it. Eventually, our commercial contracts weren't tied to PCMH at all. They were tied to our performance. But that's how we started with, with patient-centered medical home. And you mentioned house calls and other programs. This per member per month payment that we received from commercial and then Medicare Advantage payers, we used to create programs that would help us identify high-risk patients and bubble wrap uh, high-risk patients. Very important to our organization is one of the first reasons we formed was the, the hospitalist program. We now have 100 hospitalist shareholders who are seeing our patients in four hospitals in town. But attached to them is an ER care coordination program. When our patient shows up in the emergency room, the first person to see that patient oftentimes is a COPC nurse who's just there to reassure the patient, but also to work with the ER doctor to get that patient home. If the patient's admitted, they're admitted to our hospitals. Uh, the next day, an, another COPC nurse, a transition nurse, sees them, addresses their needs that will occur post-discharge, uh, sets up their discharge uh, or their post discharge a follow-up appointment with primary care, ensures that that happens, contacts the patient post-discharge. If that patient needs anything, we'll send a nurse, a social worker, or a physician, that house call, to the home. We'll do anything to prevent a readmission. That's just an example of some of the programs that we've created that help us create value that then we are recognized for. Well, Bill, it's an amazing journey, and I'm really interested in the progression of your contracting portfolio over the years. As you mentioned, when the practice was initially founded, prepayment wasn't your strategy. I mean, instead, you were looking at consolidating these practices to improve fee-for-service contract leverage, along with the improvement of quality and developing these new ancillary services. But when you started the PCMH process, there was this opportunity to embark on a journey towards value-based care. And you had the data to see who the highest performing physicians were. I mean, you mentioned how you were looking at the docs that had their diabetics and hypertensives in control and the ones that were scheduling screenings and immunizations. And I'm sure you were looking at them saying, you know, these are high performing physicians, but they're the ones that get paid the least in fee for service, <laughs> you know, and, and that I'm sure that prompted you to think, you know, how do we move more of our revenue portfolio to shared savings arrangements and, and eventually risk-based prospective payment shared savings agreements for commercial populations, uh, as I understand, along with Medicare advantage was what you used initially to set the stage for globally capitated risk and Medicare advantage. And then, and also you've been in the CPC plus program. I'm really just interested in 
how COPC's value journey was enabled by these various tipping points along the way and transitioning your revenue portfolio to population-based payment. I mean, I've I've heard from some leaders that there's this, I don't know if it's a magical tipping point, but there is a, a point where value occurs uh, culturally when you have a large majority of the business model, let's say it's 70% or more of your revenue that's at risk and the economics makes sense for the company to to be financially dependent to manage the total cost of care and and deliver the type of care delivery that that we're talking about here. So can you describe the contract portfolio and how it's transitioned over time to more capitated payment over the years? And then what what percentage of your of your revenue now is entirely at risk for managing population health outcomes? Yeah, so our to start with the last piece, our the the only revenue that's entirely at risk is our uh, senior revenue. So we've got seventy five thousand seniors in a full risk arrangement, forty thousand in Medicare Advantage among four plans, and that's in a joint venture relationship with Agilon Health, and and I'm sure we'll touch on that. Uh, and then another 35,000 who aren't fully yet attributed to us in the ACO REACH program that started as CPC Plus, then moved into direct contracting. And the reason that came about, that that senior business was back in 2012, 13, we had to make a decision. And, and I know you're very familiar with ACOs. We had to make a decision whether to become a, a, a Medicare fee-for-service ACO for our fee-for-service Medicare patients or focus on Medicare Advantage. And, and we chose to focus on Medicare Advantage because we had really good MA partners uh, here in Central Ohio that because of our PCMH relationship in the commercial market, uh, we felt that we could begin to work on a prepayment for MA as well as uh, shared savings in MA. So in, instead of focusing on the fee-for-service, we, we went to, uh, to MA. And, and we were fairly successful from 2012 into 2016 uh, with our MA population, which at that time was about 22,000 patients uh, by, by 2016. But we began to realize that if we were going to recognize uh, the full value we were creating, uh, we were going to need a partner. And the reason we were going to need a partner is we were going to have to move to risk. The payers were beginning to push us towards risk. And, and at that time, even as, uh, again, one of or the largest prime independent primary care group in the country, we didn't have the capital to move to risk. So 22,000 MA patients is about a $220 million book of business for a year. We couldn't begin to take that downside risk without a partner. Uh, so, so we began to talk to lots of folks ab about uh, a partnership. And so uh, we talked to some of the programs in California about partnership. We talked to some of the payers that uh, could possibly be a, a single partner for us. We talked to an organization that was at that time in Chicago that could have helped us move us to risk. And then uh, we were approached by Clayton Dublier and Rice, who was, it was uh, beginning to form Agilon Health. And at, at that point, Agilon wasn't even named. And for us, that was the, the, the choice we made is to, is to work with a partner and, and not a vendor and move into a fully prepaid and capitated uh, risk. That, that prepayment was just so important for us in the MA space that would allow us to invest 
ahead of the outcome and, and invest even in the year prior. Um, so we made the decision to partner with Agilon. So at this point, contractually, uh, we're at full risk on, on our senior patients, uh, either through MA or ACO reach. We have some, all of our commercial contracts come with a per member per month prepayment, and then all of them uh, have a, a shared savings arrangements based on quality and, and based on efficiency. And so a couple of our, our commercial prepayments do carry a risk component. Um, so everything we do is is now tied to to value. Every every contract we have, as far as the the tipping point goes, it's challenging because not every physician has as many senior lives. So a newer, younger physician has more commercial lives, which which don't carry that same value. So we're careful how we share that value. But I, I would say at this point, uh, most of our physicians have anywhere from twenty to almost 50% of their income in value payments. So it's, it's significant. And quite frankly, it's, it's changed our physicians, our physicians' lives. It definitely seems to be the case. And I, I appreciate you sharing just the, the contracting strategy and, and how that factors into uh, the value-based care transformation that you're doing. And I'd love to learn more about the playbook strategy that you have for senior lives and, and the work that you're doing with Agilon. But let's first talk about the commercial risk portion of your contract portfolio. I know COPC is now in a strategic partnership with advanced primary care provider, Vera Whole Health, which recently combined with healthcare data company, Castlight Health. There was a $370 million all-cash deal earlier this year. There's this promise where they can combine a value-based primary care provider with a digital platform and help patients and employers navigate the healthcare system, which ostensibly would provide more personalized care, enable providers to better address outcomes and lower costs. And preceding that merger of Vera Whole Health and Castlight, you know, JP Morgan Chase invested $50 million in Vera through its healthcare venture arm, Morgan Health. And as I understand, JP Morgan will offer Vera services to its own employees as an optional benefit with an early focus on the Columbus, Ohio market where COPC will be the care delivery arm. And although this partnership is in the early stages, they've already accomplished, I'm sure, much more than the much-heralded Haven initiative uh, was able to do during its brief turn on the healthcare stage. So, Bill, I wanted to ask you if you could just elaborate on the relationship that Central Ohio Primary Care has with Vera Whole Health and Castlight, and how can an aligned partnership like this serve as a key disruption focus strategy to move the needle on VBC and the large dysfunctional self-insured employer healthcare space? Yeah, uh, Eric, that's a that's a, a great question and a, a really interesting space in in healthcare right now. And and for transparency purposes, I I am on the Vera uh, board of directors. The Vera is privately held by CDNR, but and I am on that board. And so I I think what this stems from for us, we were in a a, a previously aforementioned and failed initiative with J.P. Morgan Chase. And we felt that there was a, a tremendous opportunity in this space with, with employers. COPC did. CDNR felt the same. And, and Vera, of course, was an existing company that CDNR bought. And then, as you mentioned, they, they bought Castlight out of the public market and merged those. So that there was both a delivery arm and a technology arm. The, the problem I feel with employers 
is em employers are buying a network and they're buying discounts and, and then they're buying administrative services from a payer. They, they aren't uh, the, the HR departments and, and CFOs of employers are not buying health or truly buying health care. They're buying insurance. And so we feel that by partnering with an employer and providing the services on site and near site and after hours, we can impact their total spend, their total cost of care. And by, by adding the programs that Vera already has in place, attached to an organized primary care group like COPC, that we can change the healthcare dynamics for not just the employees, but for their families. And so with Vera, what we'll do is we, we have begun this relationship. We, are, uh, we have two, uh, I'm sorry, we have three on-site clinics at J.P. Morgan Chase's facilities here in town. We have two near-site clinics for family and uh, COPC is staffing all five of those clinics. We are providing coaching services, behavioral health services, after-hours services for uh, those employees that, that, that desire them. We, as Vera, uh, will, and as COPC, will work hand-in-hand -hand with the existing primary care physician if it's not COPC. I mean, we're not, we are surely not asking patients to change their primary care physician. We, have, we as COPC, wouldn't want that relationship disrupted for us, but we can tied to that primary care physician with better benefit education, with better guidance and health coaching, uh, we, we think that we can Im improve an employee's experience, their health, and thus the total cost of care. So we're really excited about what this will look like and does look like here in Columbus. And then we'll look like in other markets where there's organized primary care and employers who are interested in buying health instead of insurance. Well, Bill, let's now talk about COPC's relationship with Agilon Health and how that's enabled your practice to access the capital that was needed to build an infrastructure for full-risk Medicare Advantage. I've been following Agilon for quite a while now since its founding in 2016, and it's amazing to see how they've grown to over 250,000 MA members and over 90,000 attributed direct contracting beneficiaries. A few weeks ago, we interviewed CEO Steve Sell on the podcast. And I must say, I was favorably impressed with what I learned about their approach to partnership with practices in local markets. And as I understand, COPC was Agilon's very first customer and owns a minority stake in the startup that raised more than a billion dollars in its IPO last year. And as a founding partner, COPC was in the driver's seat to help shape the software platform called a total care model that collects and analyzes the data needed to pay physicians for achieving improved population health outcomes. And this partnership with Agilon seems like it's invigorated your practice and accelerated COPC's move away from fee-for-service to patient-centric reimbursement mechanisms that prioritize optimizing the experience and health outcomes for older adults. And from what I've observed as an outsider looking in, this partnership, it has energized your physicians and it's led to excellent performance outcomes in the MA book of your business. So Bill, can you describe what attracted you to Agilon's unique physician partnership model and what have your performance results been in partnership with Agilon and how has their technology and 
process standardization and capital driven COPC to scale participation in global risk capitation models and Medicare Advantage? Yeah, thank you for that, that that question, because this has been for COPC and, and then for multiple other markets for Agilon now following us, this has been a really important uh, partnership. And, and I guess that's what I'd, I'd stress the first part is this, this is a partnership. This is not a vendor relationship. Uh, this is a joint venture partnership where we form together a risk bearing entity in the market though it's owned by Agilon, that risk-bearing entity is governed 50-50 and, and the physician partners in the market control clinical decisions. And so the partnership uh, uh, piece was just so important to us rather than cobbling together uh, vendors. That was critical. Next, capital, as I mentioned earlier, we didn't have the capital to take risk. And, and not just it's not just risk capital, but it's that capital to invest, as I said, ahead of the outcome, invest the year before, several years before, because the, the true value of better care may take several years to recognize. And really, population health value may take 5, 10, 15 years to recognize. I mean, controlling a diabetic for the next 10 years changes the following 10 years. It, it's interesting when I, when I think of how, how do we measure that piece, the true value of, of, of better screening, better immunizations, keeping people out of the hospital. I don't think we've even begun to recognize that full value. And that's one of the problems, I think, with the, the uh, innovation CMMI's programs. They, they aren't long enough to recognize that full value. So the capital was really important, the partnership, the, the ability that Agilon brought for us to risk stratify our patients. And then once risk stratified, develop programs that create value. So uh, you know, some of our programs include we have urgent cares that, that are available to our patients uh, after hours. We can do telehealth after hours. We have extensive care centers attached to our urgent cares where one of our primary care physicians can send a patient that previously had to go to the ER. So any patient who's dehydrated needs a catheter changed, needs IV antibiotics for a simple pneumonia, just needs the IV fluids or, or Lasix for heart failure. We can see those people and take care of them 12 hours a day, not in the emergency room. At the end of the day, at, at 8 p.m. at night, that patient is either going home or the ER. 5% uh, of those patients go to the emergency room when previously 100% would have been in the ER. So uh, those, those programs that we can utilize for, for high-risk or high-need patients patients. Uh, the other thing Agilon brought to us was contracting expertise, negotiating a full risk contract with the division of financial responsibilities was, was something we, we were not capable of at the time. And then the, the, the last thing that, that Agilon brought and was so obvious to us early on was just a passion, a passion for changing, for transforming healthcare and changing how primary care physicians take care of patients. So it, it's interesting. Because I shared earlier, we had we had vetted multiple partners. When I presented uh, this initial idea to our attorney, and then he heard the uh, he heard from uh, from Agilon at the time of what this could look like. He, he he turned to me at the end of the night and said, "I've never seen anything like this. You have to go this route." Um, and and that that sales cycle for Agilon that for us was almost a year getting to to, to a yes. Um, is, is much shorter now because we have a, a track record of success 
you know, this year, 40,000 MA lives. We're running 156 admits per thousand uh, when, when the national Medicare rate is well over 300 per thousand. Our, our readmit rate runs 10 or 11% when the national readmit rate for seniors is, is 18 to 19%. Um, we can just provide, a, because we're investing ahead of the outcome, we can provide a level of care that few can. And, and it's just been, you know, quite frankly, the patient is the winner, but our physicians are, rec- are being recognized for the value they're creating. Well, it sounds like an outstanding partnership, and I really appreciate you sharing some insights there. Just such an uh, inspirational story. And, you know, there's another thing I wanted to ask you about, Bill, and that's the value journey that COPC has had with the traditional Medicare population. In late 2017, you testified in a government hearing on MACRA and alternative payment models, and you talked about how the incentives in the law and COPC's own successful experience with APMs with other payers uh, is propelling the practice to move into the comprehensive primary care plus or the CPC plus model, which is a advanced APM that started in 2017. And at the time, you thought that the CPC plus program would give COPC an opportunity to bring successful care management tools that you developed for your MA population to your fee-for-service populations. And COPC plus was a significant payment reform in the practice, combining prepaid per beneficiary per month payments with modified fee-for-service payments, and by receiving that care management fee on a PMPM that reduced your FFS payments, you were able to invest in that infrastructure that you've been talking about that is really needed to manage and coordinate care for senior lives, and you really built a lot of outstanding, as I understand, uh, care management models like transitions of care to your fee-for-service population. It had some good outcomes with better care at lower cost. And while the CPC plus demonstration ended the end of last year, policymakers and stakeholders are using it as a source of inspiration for future care delivery, innovation, and advanced APM model design. Bill, can you talk about COPC's experience with the CPC plus program over these last few years and how it supported your value journey to improve quality and lower costs? in your fee-for-service Medicare population. And now that the CPC Plus program has concluded, will Central Ohio Primary Care be entering into the new ACO REACH payment model in partnership with Agilon? Yes, so the CPC Plus program, Eric, I thought was a was a great initiative, and 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 we jumped in as 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 soon as we were able. And and as you stated, what that did was provide for us a prepayment that again allowed for the creation of programs that improved care, prevented hospitalizations, and improved outcomes. So I'll just give you a, a quick example of a program we started with CPC Plus funds. So I mentioned earlier our ER intervention, ER care coordination program where a COPC nurse is attending to not clinically, but supportively for patients in the emergency room. And we started that program in one hospital. It now exists in four. But when we started in one hospital, in one year, we sent home 400 patients that had actually already been admitted. So uh, the, the ER had already hit the transport button when we stepped in and said, not so fast, we're sending Betty Smith home. And initially that caused toe-to-toe arguments with ER physicians who felt the patient had to be admitted. 
three of those 400 patients came back to the ER and we sent them home again. None of them needed to be admitted. Quite frankly, none of them probably should have come to the emergency room to begin with. But in evaluating those 400 patients, we surveyed them. And one of the questions we asked them was, did you call your primary care physician before you came to the emergency room? And only one in seven patients did. And the reason was, when, when we evaluated this, if you listen to my message after hours, it said, if it's an emergency, call 911 or go to the ER. These are the things I don't do after hours, and there were many. Otherwise, leave a message, I'll call you back within an hour. Well, you know, no wonder our patients went to the emergency room. We just, it was such an off-putting message. And so what we decided was after hours, our phones needed to be answered by a nurse. So up until 11 o'clock at night, every one of our office phones are answered by a nurse live who has access to your chart and can refill prescriptions short term, can give you lab results, can move you on to a nurse practitioner who can call in a therapy if necessary or do a telehealth visit. So we created by turning off our phones at 4.30 at night, we as primary care physicians disenfranchised our physician and they felt the best thing to do was go to the ER. So with CPC plus funds, we created this after-hours answering service staffed by not a contractor, but by our own nurses who had access to the chart after hours and could document within the chart. So uh, other programs like Falls Risk Prevention, we now have Falls Risk Prevention Program. We, we have a smoking cessation class that we started with CPC plus funds. You know, if, if you call the American Lung Association or Heart Association, great organizations, but if you want to join their smoking cessation class, they won't put on a class until there are seven or 10 people that will take the class. Well, by the time seven signs up, one decided not to quit. We have a class every single month, four class series. We'll do it for one person. And quite frankly, they don't even have to be our patient. It's a service to the community. We started that with CPC Plus funds. So when CPC Plus was going to end, we decided we would move into direct contracting. And so in April of 21, we moved into direct contracting with the end of with the change in direct contracting. Uh, we are now in uh, ACO reach. We're in ACO reach because it carries full downside risk. We're in, in that also with Agilon. And there are many other markets uh, that are Agilon markets in MA who are now in ACO reach programs with Agilon. So we now have uh, all of our seniors at, at full risk in a partner relationship with Agilon. But CPC plus funds are what allowed us to, to invest in programs that, again, create value uh, for all our seniors. Now, instead of getting that prepayment through CPC Plus, uh, we're using funding from, from CMS and from Agilon to create that value. Well, Bill, I wanted to ask you more about ACO Reach. Um, as a national leader in value-based care, I'd love to hear your perspective on how the value movement is evolving to include health equity and social justice as a focal point. I mean, the industry's moving to value-based care, and we all know that this is something that's been, you know, decades in the making. However, the impact on racial health disparities has been limited, but now with this ACO Reach program. CMS is planning to embed health equity into the payment, all payment models with more focus on improving health outcomes in underserved populations. And 
the re-engineering of pay for performance models to include health equity as a key financial measure for success will eventually require all ACOs and other risk-bearing entities to conduct disparity impact assessments, create health equity reports to monitor whether institution-level policies are proactively reducing health disparities. And another example of this would be to have some sort of socio-demographic-based risk adjustment that takes into account race and poverty. So, Bill, uh, what are your thoughts about how value-based care is being reoriented around racial and health justice? And how is COPC's value transformation strategy evolving uh, with this new approach to better serving underserved populations and building community relationships and impacting social determinants of health? Yeah, Eric, I think I think we've always known this as physicians, that there is health inequality, uh, be it racial or socioeconomic. We've always known it. We just haven't known how to address it and, and how to quantify it. Uh, first, how to recognize it, quantify it, and then address it. And, and so fortunately, the, this really came to light for us as COPC and as Agilon, even prior to ACO reach, and really what brought it to light, I think, for the entire country is, is COVID and, and how the discrepancies in, in care and access uh, affected outcomes in COVID and, and, and outcomes, uh, including mortality. So we were very pleased by these changes in direct contracting that turned into ACO reach that, that addressed the social determinants of health. And quite frankly, anytime a, a patient of ours is seen for their yearly visit, uh, be it an annual wellness visit and or just a yearly uh, physical for commercial or a post-hospitalization visit, the, the patient prior to their appointment uh, is, is sent a, a notice by email that they have a, a form to complete in the portal. That form helps us assess their activities of daily living. Do they need help? It addresses their, uh, are they able to pay their bills for their utilities? Are they able to afford uh, their medicines? Uh, a level of health literacy? Uh, have they been discriminated against? Uh, in, in recent times. So that then can auto load into the electronic record for that visit. So I think many physicians, and not just COPC or Agile, I think many physicians because of COVID recognized this was an issue. And I think the fact that uh, CMMI has placed this into the program is, is critical. I, I know that uh, for Agilon, a number greater than 40% of our offices are located in underserved areas. And so this is important uh, for us. It's important for the country. And, and again, it's, it's just most important for the patient you're, you're seeing in front of you. So we like these changes that have come about, and we think the, the CMMI has taken this the right direction. Well, I couldn't agree more, and it's a tremendous opportunity, I think, for your group to get into reach. And, you know, if if the past is any predictor of the future, I, I know you're going to be uh, you're going to perform really well in that program. Um, one of the things, like as as we take a look back at the value journey of COPC, you know, uh, I've you know we talked about how you used PCMH and Medicare Advantage as building blocks to enable population health and care coordination strategies. And you've really built this uh, integrated care network. I mean, that follows patients through skilled nursing, end of life, 24 seven care to continue their population health journey. And, you know, by leveraging a lot of the prepayment and the capital, I mean, you've created a care delivery model that improves patient access to preventative services. It's lowered hospital admissions and readmission rates. It's enabled patients to stay at home when they need to. 
COPC hospitalists have access to the outpatient record. All the information is there on primary care, specialists, hospital records. They're readily available to, to address patient medical needs. And you've uh, mentioned earlier how you developed uh, ancillary services early on for revenue optimization. I'm sure that's played a part also in just providing the clinical integration to keep the patients in the practice. And, uh, you know, and also I've read about the work that you've done with Leading Reach to provide referrals to providers outside of your practice. I mean, you've digitized 90% of your referrals You've cut the waiting time down for patients to see specialists in half. So I just wanted to ask you, Bill, if you could provide maybe a brief overview of the clinically integrated model at COPC and how does it improve patient experience and eliminate fragmentation and care delivery and enhance information sharing and ultimately improve patient health outcomes? Yeah, thanks, Eric. I, I think we feel that the more we can keep the patient within our electronic record, the better for the patient. And so some of those programs I mentioned, our same-day centers, which are urgent cares, and our pediatric support centers that are open until 10 o'clock at night. And, and again, the phone's answered by a nurse. We'll, we'll do visits until 10 p.m. For, uh, for children and their parents. I think integrating physical therapy so that uh, and our physical therapists are, are working within our chart. They know the patient's history. They know everything about them. It, it, all of it is already there. Uh, I think integrating radiology and cardiovascular testing. And, and you mentioned the uh, the ancillaries, uh, those profit centers are not nearly as important as they are now as cost centers. And so what, what it turns into, and especially for patients, so many patients are on high deductible health plans. A cardiac echo at COPC is about $500. Have the same test with the same equipment read by the same cardiologist who we contract with at the hospital, and it's $2,000. And so we actually save more on much of our ancillary testing than we actually earn. But, but for the patient, that's wonderful if they're in a high deductible plan or they're trying not to meet a deductible at all. So having that all within one chart is very valuable to us. As far as the, the specialists go, we do use leading reach. Uh, the nice thing about that is if a referral is not answered, we can pull it back and send it to someone else. This has been a challenge for us, the, the, the integration of the specialists into value, because that's not, the, that's not the world specialists live in. They don't live in the value world. Their, their goal is not, our goal is to eliminate waste. Waste leads uh, to unnecessary patient suffering. And, and isn't that what we're about? But, but working with specialists has been, has been challenging and even challenging for our physicians to utilize data to change referral patterns. It just takes time. I mean, change takes time. We can, and I mentioned this early on, we can identify value uh, by specialist. An example would be um, uh, uh, disc disease and spinal surgery. A certain percentage of disc surgeries uh, should be decompression and a certain uh, percent be fusion. Fusion is four times the cost, four times the complications, four times the recovery time. Uh, but, but there are areas uh, in markets where 100% of the procedures are, are fusions. Well, that's just unacceptable. And so we initially started working with specialists by service level agreements. This is what we'd like you to do. What it turns into eventually is we've got to show specialist data and say, you are an outlier. 
and and referrals need to change until you're no longer an outlier. And maybe this is a bit altruistic in 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 our market that that maybe we can change the delivery of care in more of the market than just we touch by changing specialty care. Uh, I, I think partnering with with specialists focusing on on MSK and, and oncology has been a real push for us. That that I think we can improve care and eliminate waste by sharing data with our physicians and sharing that same data with specialists. And I think we can we can make some changes in how care is delivered. Well, one of the changes that you've made, Bill, and how you deliver care is telehealth. And I'd like to ask you a little bit more about that and how it's utilized in the practice. I mean, prior to March of 2020, which we all remember is when the world changed, I mean, COPC at that time didn't provide any telehealth visits. And you were planning to pilot telehealth mid-year and then slowly launch it in Q4 of that year. However, the the pandemic changed all that. I mean, you had now a new goal to rapidly create and implement a telemedicine program within one week that would allow COPC providers, approximately 350 of them, to continue serving the clinical needs of patients in a safe and effective manner that they found useful and satisfying while securing financial and operational stability for the organization and its employees. And COPC was able to reach a maximum of more than 2,200 telehealth visits in a day, comprising about 75% of total visits during the most severe period of the lockdown. So now that the pandemic has transitioned to more of a everyday endemic situation, what is the continued role of telehealth in your advanced primary care model? Do you, do you see telehealth becoming more of a prominent vehicle in your practice to deliver primary care, assuming that we achieve reimbursement parity? And then I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. And then maybe what you think about some of these other emerging technologies like AI and wearables and precision medicine and the future of value-based care. Yeah, so just to address the last part first, we've been slow, I would say, in the adoption of, of wearables and, and uh, remote monitoring. Monitoring, we, we, need to, we need to improve that over the coming years, and, and I think we will. As far as telehealth goes, um, uh, thank you for your comments about, uh, about uh, COVID. We, we were able to stand up telehealth very quickly, um, and uh, quite frankly, it was just a tremendous benefit for our patients, keeping them out of the emergency room when in fact they had COVID and, 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 or had been exposed. And so being able to do telehealth uh, was, a, was a real benefit, not only financially for us, uh, but, but financially because of the fee-for-service component of it, but also financially because of the risk component uh, of, of not having people uh, in the emergency room and the safety component during COVID. So uh, standing that up, our, our team just did a, an incredible job in getting to telehealth. Now, if I go back uh, 10 or 12 years, I, I don't know if you recall, there was an organization started here in Columbus named uh, HealthSpot. And, and HealthSpot was a was supposed to be the next billion dollar company in Columbus. It was an outstanding idea. It was actually a box you went into with a, a door you'd close. Uh, there was a high definition screen. Uh, there was a Bluetooth stethoscope. Uh, there was a blood pressure cuff and a thermometer and a dermoscope. 
um, that you could see the you could see the patient on the screen, but you could also examine skin or their. Uh, it had an otoscope, and it, so you could do ear exams. And so we were HealthSpot's uh, pilot organization. <clears throat> Unfortunately, HealthSpot uh, uh, failed for for some financial reasons. But we, through HealthSpot, understood that patients were amenable to telehealth. Um, they and 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 it wasn't age dependent. Um, and, and the way our pilot was, was set up was when a patient went to our urgent care, we offered them a visit in the, in, uh, in the health spot booth, which was in our urgent care. And we, the doc was actually upstairs at the time in the same building and could come down and see the patient if they needed to. But uh, it was very effective. So we knew that there were visits that that can and quite frankly should be done uh, via telehealth. And of course, uh, fast forward and 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 COVID made that uh, made that possible. Uh, so to to this point, we've done well over two hundred thousand telehealth visits. Uh, unfortunately, telehealth isn't hasn't. We predicted that it would remain about fifteen percent of our visits, and and it's usually right now it's about eight percent of our visits. But I, I do think in in some areas of medicine. Um, you know, be it behavioral health, it's it's really taken off. But in in primary care, uh, its best utilization right now is really in in a follow up post a medication change. Um, but I do think em employers should want telehealth visits. And, and it's it's interesting when we were doing Health Spot, I went to a very large employer here in town and said, "Can we put one of these boxes in your in in the, on the first floor so that your employees?" could go down and have a telehealth visit. And, and we were able to get the, the systems in town, the four, three adult systems and us, that we would, we would provide staffing for that uh, in our offices so that we, and, and employers didn't want it. Now, now, let me speak to telehealth overall. I, I think telehealth outside of relationship with your primary care physician without the longitudinal record, I think is a very low level of care. If I, if I rank a, a, a visit, a visit with your primary care physicians within your record is, I think, the most valuable visit. A visit with a live visit with your primary care physician's partner or NP uh, in person uh, with your longitudinal chart is it would be next. Uh, next would be a video visit with your physician or their partner. Next would be an in-person urgent care visit. I think the lowest level of care available today is a video visit by a provider who does not know you and does not have your record. Now, that said, organizations that are telehealth organizations came to be because of what I addressed earlier. We turned off, we as primary care physicians turned off our phone at 4.30 and uh, would call you back later. That's, we as primary care physicians caused the creation of telehealth companies and the need for them. But that's where we as primary care physicians have to step in and be responsible for our patient uh, at all hours of the day and night. Uh, and, and that's where we need to be. So I do think telehealth will continue to grow. I think there's, quite frankly, been pent up demand for in-person visits, even uh, post-COVID or as we tail the tail of COVID. So I, I do think we'll end up somewhere around 10 to 15 percent. And I think it's it's at, it's so convenient for patients. It's convenient for physicians. Um, and, and we just need to we, we need to provide it. Well, Bill, 
you have such a great story to tell. And, you know, again, I just commend you for your leadership over these uh, last few years at Central Ohio Primary Care. I mean, you're truly a leader in the value movement. And as we wrap up our conversation today, I just wanted to ask you about the, you know, your thoughts on the importance of industry collaboration to advance value-based care. I'm really interested in how groups like mine, the Institute for Advancing Health Value or APG, to which you're a longstanding member and, and board leader, how they can best support industry in their value journey. Can you provide maybe your parting thoughts on the importance of, of, of collegiality, collaboration, and peer learning and networking as we all, you know, create this ecosystem in this village to, to make value work in our country. And then I, and then for those listeners out there that are really thinking intently about approaching strategic planning and thinking about workforce needs for the future of population health, uh, what advice would you give them? Yeah, I, I, I thank you for your your kind words, Eric. And, and quite frankly, none of this happens without a physician base who is interested in transforming. If, if our physicians uh, didn't see the value in this uh, for their patients, it, it wouldn't happen. So we, we just have a tremendous group of, of physicians and partners, uh, both both Agilon and Vera, that want to transform healthcare. And so it's it's quite frankly it's easy to lead good people uh, when when they agree that there there are, there is need for change, uh, and there is. I mean the the you know to to say the fee for service uh, uh, system is broken uh, almost sounds silly these days because we know that. Um, I, I do think it's really important uh, for government to remain behind this, to maybe simplify the number of plans that for programs that come out of CMMI, but stick with them long enough to see the benefits of true population health. I, I think there's, uh, you know, uh, Congress has to be behind this. That's really challenging. I, I, you know, when you when you testify before Congress, people are in and out of the room so often that I'm not sure anybody really gets the whole picture. Um, and, and that needs to happen. And, and, and Congress has to understand the value that can be created by moving physicians to risk. Uh, risk changes behavior. If, if we just focused on waste, we could change healthcare. Uh, and and so I, I you know it's, it's it's so interesting you know the uh, American Board of Internal Medicine through programs e years ago uh, identified areas of waste and it didn't change behavior and and that's what has to happen we have to be willing as physicians uh, to take responsibility not just for the clinical care for our patients the financial responsibility so clinical and financial responsibility is is just crucial for us so i i'm a, i'm i'm in favor of risk contract i'm in favor of value contracting i'm in favor of the the progression to risk you don't have to you can't move to risk immediately you've got to progress through pmpm payment and programs and shared savings uh, but i think the governmental support both at uh, at cms and Congress, and then employers have to get behind this. Employers, the creative employers, uh, transformative employers like J.P. Morgan Chase, uh, who and through Morgan Health, who are investing in areas that will create value. It's really important that employers get on board because, quite frankly, we we can't keep leaning on employers to to make up that delta created by uh, by Medicare uh, uh, who can't pay their costs at the hospital. So th thank you for what what your organization is doing and getting this word out. Thank you for involving COPC in this. I, I really appreciate the time. 
Dr. Wolf, thank you for your time and your commitment to the value movement. We truly are in a race to make value-based care work in our country, and it's leaders like you that are making it happen. I appreciate your time today. I learned so much, and I, I know our listeners are, are going to benefit from this conversation as well. Thank you, Eric.